Welcome to Respect Life Radio. My name is Deacon Jeff Bennett with Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of Denver. And remember, you can listen to all of our shows at respectliferadio.com. Today, our guest is Patrick Flynn. Pat is a writer, philosopher, podcaster, and speaker who lives in Wisconsin with his wife and five children. He hosts Philosophy for the People and the Pat Flynn Show. And he has a new book out called The Best Argument for God. Patrick, thanks for joining us today. It is a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. Now, I want to know how you find time to write a book with five children. Well, fortunately, it's sort of my profession. So I have no other choice. It's <laughs> part of what pays the bill. So, you know, necessity is, is always helpful. But writing is something that I've, I've always enjoyed. It's, it's never easy, especially when you trying to write a 256-page philosophy book, but I felt this was important enough that I needed to set aside the the time and the energy and and effort to get it done, and thankfully, I have an extremely supportive family, so the environment could not have been better. Well, that's good, and it it is important because we really, we live in a world where people don't use their brain, right? They, They spout what they think based on what they hear in snippets, either on social media or on television. And we have a real lack of people trying to think for themselves and, and, and use their intellect to kind of discern why they believe what they believe and, and how do they know what is true, right? Yeah, I think that's right. We live in a, in a time where reason has definitely taken a backseat to emotion, and that's a, that's a real shame because certainly in, the, in the much of philosophical tradition, but certainly for Catholics, we believe that it is really good for us. It perfects us to come to know the truth of things and ultimately to know the truth about God and to find friendships union and eternal friendships union with God. So truth is really important to us. And to the extent that we're not fully engaged in reasoning, we're sort of living like a brute animal. We're failing to even be fully human or failing to sort of actualize ourselves in in the way that God ultimately intends. So yeah, it's a serious issue and it's definitely an issue that our culture is suffering at large. There's no doubt about it. Some people can be intimidated when they hear philosophy and think, oh, I, I, can't, I can't go there. But maybe you can explain what is philosophy and, and why does it matter? Great question. Thank you. Uh, in fact, I spend a fair amount of time at the beginning of the book talking about this. But simply put, I like Alvin Plantinga's. Uh, he's, a, he's a contemporary philosopher. I like his way of discussing philosophy. He says philosophy is just thinking hard about things. I like that because it's not too complicated. Of course, Socrates tells us that philosophy is the love of wisdom, and you can get more technical definitions as well, that philosophy is something like that critical reflective turn we take back upon experience, where we try to assemble the data of common experience and sort of weave it into a coherent whole to make sense of our experience and and the universe at large. So philosophy is something that has many different branches. Uh, Everything from ethics, which is the study of the good life, falls under philosophy. Metaphysics, which is the study of being as a philosophical discipline that has uh, important implications for the uh, existence of God. You also have philosophy of science, which engages in a lot of conceptual analysis and helps provide a conceptual framework uh, for not just how science is done, but how science is interpreted. Uh, You have philosophy of, of mind, which tries to better understand what the mental life is, what consciousness is. You have philosophical anthropology which, of course, is very rich in the Catholic tradition as well. And that's trying to understand what is the nature of a human being. And there's many competing philosophies in all these different camps. Uh, 
some I believe are true and, and right and good, and others I believe are totally wrong and pernicious. But here's the other thing I would, I would like to impress about philosophy, is philosophy isn't really something that you can escape. It's only something that you can escape doing well. And what I mean by that is we all have philosophical perspectives. We all have a worldview. We have a, a mode of being. We have a lens on through which we interpret life, through which we pursue certain goods through which we prioritize our efforts and order ourselves to what we believe are the highest and most important goods. And once you realize that, that philosophy is not something that you can escape, that you can only escape doing well, that it's sort of inevitable, that we have to philosophize, even if just sort of unconsciously, um, then I think, well, we, if, if we're stuck doing this, we, we might as well try to do it right. We might as well try to do the best we can. It doesn't need to be intimidating. Uh, it can be difficult, of course, thinking, thinking about things. There's, there's lots of puzzles that are challenging. But what I've learned is that those challenges are worth it, that there's a lot of fruit, uh, a lot of both not just intellectual but spiritual fruit that can come from wrestling with the big and important questions of life. So I know your, your story is interesting because you used philosophy to leave faith and also come back. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. I would certainly be happy to. So my introduction to philosophy was not with any um, particular mainstream philosopher. It was, all, it was actually with writers I was interested in when I was, when I was younger. Uh, Mark Twain, I remember, uh, had a particular grip on me. I thought he was hilarious for one thing and an amazing storyteller. But he was always exploring all these philosophical ideas. In fact, he's got this essay called What is Man? And it, it's grappling with the issue of, of free will. And I remember that, that essay really pulled me in and got me thinking about the issue of determinism, whether determinism is true or whether human beings really have some real agency, some libertarian free will. And that, of course, is a philosophical topic. It's been a perennial philosophical debate. Other uh, writers that influenced me were H.L. Mencken. And H.L. Mencken, he's an older writer, and he was actually a, a, a staunch atheist. Um, he was influenced by Nietzsche, and he had one of the first English works out on Nietzsche at, at his time. And so he kind of passed me off to these old atheists and these atheist existentialists. So when I finally came into philosophy, it was really sort of through that perspective. And they, for obvious reasons, had a very significant influence on my worldview. And they sort of veered me towards a materialistic, reductionist conception of the world. Uh, at, at which point, and I always try to make this clear, um, even though I was not a religious person, I would have considered myself a naturalist for many years. I never had any, you know, quote unquote, issue with religion. Uh, I just thought from the perspective that I held that there wasn't any good reasons to be religious or believe in God and that, you know, science has this, science can explain it all. But and so I was there for many years. But as I really tried to work things out systematically and I tried to find satisfying answers to the big, important questions of life, I came over time increasingly to realize that the atheistic worldview uh, in which it's uh, often termed philosophical naturalism. That's the, if you ever hear the term naturalism, that's really just a sort of philosophically developed form of atheism. What I learned is that naturalism really doesn't explain much of anything particularly well, at least not the things that I was interested in. Questions concerning why does anything exist instead of nothing, or how do we make sense of human consciousness or the qualitative dimension of experience if everything in the naturalistic worldview is just supposed to be atoms and the laws we use to combine them, uh, moral questions, right? How do we make sense of these deep moral intu intuitions we have about certain things having 
value and certain actions being either permissible or prohibited. And at each one of these points, uh, I came to realize that if naturalism had any answer at all, uh, and in many cases it, it didn't, uh, the answer was far from satisfying, to say the least. So after uh, the dissatisfactions mounted up to a significant extent, I sort of threw my hands up and I said, OK, I, I have no idea what is true. I have no idea what the correct perspective is, but I'm almost certain that this isn't it. And at that point, I decided that I was unknowingly going to go on the hunt for God. And I wanted to sort of reconsider everything afresh or as fresh as I could anyways. And that really started by me just kind of going back and taking another look at certain philosophers that I was familiar with, you know, in, in the sense that anybody who goes through an undergrad uh, philosophy course would be familiar with them, Plato and Aristotle and, and thinkers like that. But I really wanted to just try on other worldviews and test other arguments and see other perspectives and see if any of those thinkers or, or those perspectives could actually provide answers to the questions that were most important to me. And, and I think those are questions that are most important to everybody at the end of the day. And to condense the story a little bit, once I came upon not just Thomas Aquinas, but the, the philosophical school of Thomism, and Thomism just means people who sort of follow Thomas Aquinas, I finally began to see a picture or a worldview or perspective that really did justice to experience. It could make sense of reality that fit extremely well with everything we know through contemporary science. And that itself was really an extension or better a perfection or refinement of so many great previous thinkers before him. I often like to say that Thomas Aquinas, I don't think of him as the sort of uh, first great medieval philosopher. I think of him as the sort of last great classical philosopher, somebody who sort of completes the great project of perennial philosophy that would include people like Plato and Aristotle, thinkers in, 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 in that broad camp, if you will. And then you can't spend too much time with Thomas Aquinas. People will follow him without um, getting a bit of theology as well and, and hearing all this stuff about Christianity and Catholicism. And so once I became increasingly convinced of the theistic or classical theistic worldview, I became increasingly interested in questions of religion in Revelation, of whether there is any credibility to any of the claims of Christianity and the Catholic Church in particular. And as we can explore you know, more in this conversation if we want, I found that there was a lot of credibility, uh, historical credibility in particular, but also I think a good sort of philosophical befittingness to take not just Christianity, but Catholicism extremely seriously. Um, now, this isn't to say it was all an intellectual journey by any means. You know, The intellect is part of it. The will is another part. Uh, grace is another part, and there's many other aspects to 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 my story and my my ultimate coming in. You know, uh, really reversion because I was baptized. So I'm, I'm technically a revert, not a convert. But in terms of the the intellectual journey, uh, that's the uh, it, it was really Saint Thomas Aquinas and his followers that had the biggest influence on me coming back into the Catholic faith. That's right. Well, and the beauty of uh, Saint Thomas Aquinas is he he talks both sides, right? He doesn't just automatically eliminate the argument that there's no God, right? He, he gives reasons for both sides. So he, he's an easier one to understand. And, and you feel like he's more open to the, to the question, right? As opposed to just discounting one side altogether and just saying, this is why I believe what I believe. Yeah. What really impressed me with St. Thomas um, was not just his methodology and his systematicity, uh, you know, Aquinas is, he's, he's, he's really, a worldview designer or discoverer. 
Uh, he's so systematic, and everything about his philosophical perspective sort of hangs together. How he thinks about metaphysical questions informs how he thinks about ethical questions and, and questions of, of beauty um, and philosophical anthropology and what a human person is. And that, that was extremely striking to me, was the fact that, okay, this is, this is really cool. He's got a whole system worked out here, where in modern philosophy, you don't see a lot of that. You'll see people kind of working on isolated things, and it'll kind of you know, maybe propose a solution, but it's not exactly clear how that's supposed to fit with other commitments they have or other commitments of other worldviews. It's very disjointed, not so with Thomas Aquinas. But to your other point, he was also an expert at what um, philosophers these days call steel manning. So, you know, where straw manning is when you sort of intentionally caricature the opponent's position, you know, make it weaker than it actually is, and then continue to attack the weakened opponent. Uh, Thomas was sort of the opposite. He had this excellent ability to not only present the best objections, but to present them in a way uh, that they were often uh, stronger than how you would find them presented by Thomas's actual opposition or even many, you know, contemporary atheists or something like that. So that told me that this that this guy was this guy was was serious. He was somebody who who really not just took the faith seriously, uh, but believed that the faith was true and really had the intellectual muscle to handle the best objection. And as somebody who, who came from a skeptical background, that, that resonated with me, even if you're not convinced right away. Uh, and I think this is just good general advice for apologists or philosophers in general, right? When, when a skeptic sees that a position is strongly or fairly presented, that, gets, that at least gets their attention and respect. Whereas if, if a position is not fairly represented or if it's caricatured, even if somebody has many good things to say, uh, you might have immediately lost them right there. Uh, but no, Thomas Aquinas corrected me immediately because of his ability to represent the opposite side in a very in a very forceful manner. Uh, and then, of course, systematically refute it, which was important too. But yeah. Yeah. Well, and you talk about not fairly representing, right? I mean, you've probably seen the Ben Stein video expelled, potentially. It's on YouTube. I would encourage people to watch it where anybody who believes in a creator in you know higher academics right, gets kicked out or loses all their funding. It really is interesting to see how, you know, Darwinism and that and that belief, you know, really is afraid of even acknowledging there could be a creator, right? So instead of arguing and having debate, they try to silence it in the higher institutions. Yeah, I think there's un undoubtedly a pretty pernicious bias that goes on. Uh, if not against religious positions in general, definitely within certain schools of, of thought and the, the school of thought that you're identifying right now is one that I have many associates in. I, I'm, I'm uh, not um, a part of it myself, not formally any, as would be the intelligent design movement. And I would say across the board, they have been extremely unfairly represented and treated. Um, again, their their particular line of research and argumentation is not uh, – my mode of, of specialization. But from what I have seen of the debate, uh, they are re routinely mischaracterized. They're, you know, they're, people often ascribe motives to them that are just patently false, right? Just engage in character assassinations. And then one, of course, can engage in this sort of armchair psychoanalysis uh, to try and figure out, well, why is, why is this going on? And I certainly have, you know, my speculations and, and my theories of what that is. And part of it, you know, comes down to the, uh, you know, a I think a, a wider sort of bias or agenda that itself sort of hinges upon certain philosophical commitments. Uh, Darwinism or neo-Darwinism uh, is sort of one of those hinge points 
for a naturalistic worldview. And what I mean by that, uh, I'll go back to the philosopher Alvin Plantinga again. Uh, he said, look, for the, for the atheist, sort of Darwinism is the only game in town. Like this better work out, this better be true, or we're in a really bad situation in terms of explanations. The same is not true for the theist. I, w- I want to be clear about that. In, in terms of evolutionary theory, the theist can be quite neutral. Uh, on that respect, right? I think that the evolutionary theory is compatible, certainly with classical theism, uh, but also with the teachings of the church as well. So they can, the theists can really kind of be open to follow whatever they think is the best line of evidence or argumentation on the matter. But I don't think that's actually true for naturalists. I think that it, that it has to be, you know, come hell or high water, this better be right. And in some sense that uh, it causes them to engage in, in motivated reasoning and to maybe not be as academically serious when it comes to exploring the, uh, I think, quite significant deficiencies of a neo-Darwinian paradigm, and to become uh, quite agitated when other people are willing to expose those deficiencies. And that's where you see all these hostilities and slanderizations and all this this awful stuff uh, going on. Sometimes people think that if somebody's in academia or just the, the, the academia itself, that it's somehow immune to human nature and, and awful sinful tendencies, it's certainly not. Just maybe hides beneath the surface a little bit better in other places. But you, you see all sorts of vile stuff happening, you know, among academics all the time. That's that's it's just kind of kind of what goes on, unfortunately. Right? That's not to say it's all bad. Of course, there's lots of great work being done. But when it comes to issues like these, uh, what you say is, is definitely not uh, off the mark. One of the big issues that people have when trying to, you know, rationalize whether there's a God or not a God, right? They, they really stumble over this problem of evil. How would you address that with somebody who said, how can it, if there is a God, how can he let evil take place? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a huge, it's a huge issue. And by a huge issue, I mean, it's a perennial issue, right? This isn't something that just cropped up in 1960 that philosophers have been thinking about. You know, this is something that goes all the way back to to antiquity. And it's a traditional problem, and it's a traditional problem that many people should suspect has traditional responses and solutions. So there's there's a lot of ways to, to formulate the problem of evil. And depending on how it's formulated, there's a lot of ways to respond to it. So I can give uh, some some kind of a quick sketch of the way that the debate could go in ways that, that I think are effective ways of responding to it intellectually. And I always want to sort of demarcate the intellectual problem of evil from the moral or spiritual or emotional problem of evil. You know, as philosophers, we're just trying to figure out, okay, is this argument sound, right? Does it actually go through uh, or is it not? Uh, and as best as we can, we're just trying to use the light of reason uh, and hopefully to cut through any fog of emotion. And there's no doubt that the problem of evil is a problem for all of us in the sense that we all grapple with it. And it can often cloud reason. So I just say that just to make it clear that what the philosopher up to is not necessarily trying to be a pastor. They're just trying to get to the, the truth about things. And, and sometimes that can seem a little bit cold. But the philosopher's job is just to get to the truth about things. So if somebody's presenting a, a problem of evil, what I might call the strong form problem of evil, what they're trying to say is that there's something about this world and its distribution of suffering and evil that is strictly incompatible with God. There's, there's some sort of contradiction in there, right? If, if God is all good and all powerful, then evil just would not exist. Now, I think people should should actually understand that this is an area where I think significant philosophical progress is made, which is itself significant because you don't often see a lot of 
sort of philosophical movement. There, the people are always disagreeing. Uh, but, but I would say the majority of philosophers, my impression anyways, both theistic and atheist, uh, have agreed that that problem is a failure because nobody can sort of draw out just exactly what the contradiction is between God and evil, precisely because for all we know, God has a morally sufficient reason for allowing the evil and suffering of our experience. So it's very important to understand that dialectically, if that's what's being presented by the skeptic, the burden of proof is on them to show that God not only does not, but could not have a good reason, a morally sufficient reason for allowing the evil and suffering in the world. And it's certainly not a good inference to go from, well, I don't see any reason to there is no reason. And just right. to kind of draw an, an analogy out on that, um, if I'm playing chess against a chess master and I'm a total neophyte at chess, which I am, I might not see any particular reason for any particular move the chess master makes. But I also shouldn't expect to see a reason because I'm not a chess master. But if I know I'm dealing with a chess master, then I can expect that there are great reasons, even if I would not expect to be able to see what those reasons are. Now, whatever the distance is between me and the chess master, that is completely eclipsed by whatever the differences are, switching the relevant things around, between me and God or any finite creature and God. And the reasons that God could encompass as the creator and governor of the whole and all the various goods and connections between goods that God would know when taking into account our limited, not only just existence, but cognitive abilities, we, I think we can make a pretty uh, quick attack on the problem of evil to say that we shouldn't even expect to see what all the possible reasons would be, because we don't have to think that there's just one, that God could allow the suffering and evil of this world. Now, to kind of even tighten the analogy, somebody might say, well, look, you know the chess master exists, but how do we know that God exists? And that's where I would pivot to other arguments for the existence of God, arguments, cosmological arguments like the sort that Thomas Aquinas gives, his famous five ways, his deente, contingency arguments, fine-tuning arguments, whatever you want. I think that there are actually quite decisive arguments for the existence of God so that we know that God exists. And if we know that God exists and he is as traditional theists have understood him, then we can know that he does have these excellent reasons, the best of reasons, in fact, for allowing this particular providence, this particular providence of suffering. And of course, Christians have their, their explanation of suffering, of why it is the way it is. But I'm just saying, what the, the move I'm making here is just to show that the skeptic has not even come close to meeting the burden of, of proof on this, and that the problem of evil, at least in these stronger forms, I would say is, is decidedly a failure. So from a philosophical perspective, I don't think it's, uh, it's even particularly an issue at all. I think that this is, this is an issue that should be done on the pastoral side, um, which is not my job, right? But if as a philosopher, I can get somebody to start, to start moving in that direction, then I think maybe we, we might have made some, some significant progress. So how's that for a start? It's a great start because you hear it a lot, right? And and that's why, you know, we need to be able to be thinkers, right? To think, I thought your analogy of the chess master was excellent. I mean, I think that that gives people a picture uh, and gives them a better understanding. And I knew this interview was going to go so fast. We have about the next, you know, probably two, three minutes to go. Um, and I can't even ask half my questions because I was so enthralled with the book. But who is your audience for this book? That is an important question because I was really what I was trying to do with this book is is fill what I think is a a pretty significant gap when it comes to books arguing for the existence of God, uh, especially apologetic books. I noticed that there was there are a lot of books that unfortunately are not particularly well done. 
I don't think they represent the naturalistic perspective particularly well, or they're just a bit too superficial. I don't think that they, they totally satisfy people who are hungry for answers and sincerely skeptical. On the other hand, I think there is an enormous amount of really great academic literature being done by Christians and Catholics and theists that um, really uh, have made significant advances uh, in terms of arguments for the existence of God, responses to the problem. Well, there's a lot of great stuff there, but the problem is it's totally inaccessible to the non-professional philosopher. So what I wanted to do was create something of a middle-brow effort, something that the yes, this will be a challenging read. I am expecting something of the reader. But if you're willing to put in the effort, I will guide you through this project. I will give you what I think is one of the absolute best cases that can be made for the existence of God, not just for your own edification or if you're a skeptic to help you seriously consider the, the theistic paradigm, but also something that I, I hope that if you're a parent, uh, would be something that you could give to your interested high school student, whether they're just looking to deepen their understanding of the theistic worldview, or even if they themselves are seriously grappling, grappling with, with philosophical issues. So middle brow is how I, I sort of like to uh, to um, phrase it. It's, it's a challenge, as anybody who's already been through the book has told me, that it isn't an easy read, but it's a doable read for people who are seriously interested in it. And uh, if, if you are, then I think that this is going to be the book for you. And again, the book is The Best Argument for God, put out by Sophia Institute Press. Uh, so, Patrick, how can people follow what you're doing, follow your podcast, and, and really get to know you and, and, and rely on you as, uh, as someone that can kind of help guide them? Thank you. I really appreciate it. Um, the best place to find me, aside from just linking up on the various places on social media, I'm on, on Twitter, I guess it's called X now and stuff like that, uh, would be my podcast. And my podcast is called Philosophy for the People. So if you just search my name, Philosophy for the People, we're on iTunes, we're on YouTube. We're not just exploring the great philosophical ideas, uh, but we're doing so from a Catholic perspective as well. So that's often co-hosted with my, my good friend, Dr. Jim Madden, who teaches the Benedictines. How frequent is your podcast? We tend to get out uh, two to three episodes per week, and a number of the episodes are just uh, just us discussing some philosophical issue or idea. Very honored to be able to uh, feature a lot of great guests, especially Catholic academics. What I've discovered is there's so many brilliant Catholics out there doing such great work in philosophy, but they are academics, so most people have never heard of them. So one of my missions has, has been to uh, highlight these people and, and their good work and get them on the podcast so people can become familiar with the good I think that they've really done for the church. Respect Life Radio is produced by Catholic Charities in the Archdiocese of Denver. And remember, you can listen to all of our shows at respectliferadio.com.